Welcome to the Gossip and Glamour podcast, where we cover all things fashion and offer listeners insider access to the Seattle style scene. Join us as we interview Pacific Northwest designers, boutiques, brands, and local creatives. I'm your host, Sydney Mintel. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, fashion friends, and welcome to episode eight of the Gossip and Glamour podcast. Today, we're talking to freelance writer and travel expert, Amanda Zarita. Amanda is a Seattle-based freelance writer, editor, and photo stylist with a focus on fashion, travel, and design. Additionally, she spends six months a year traveling the world as an incessant traveler, as well as working as a guidebook researcher and tour guide throughout Europe. She's also the former style editor of Seattle Met Magazine and former editor-in-chief of Seattle Met Bride and Groom. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, good morning. How are you? So good. How are you? So nice to be with you on this sunny Tuesday. I know. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Like, I'm going to just sit outside and read or something later. Yesterday was so nice, too. I know. I'm going to do a picnic at Gasworks tonight, and I'm so excited. Smart. These are like, these are all the things I have to do when it's sunny in Seattle. I know. I need to go get some like patio drinks or something Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Figure that out. So, welcome to episode eight of the Gossip and Glamour podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the beginning. Um, Tell us kind of your origin story. So I'm from Oklahoma, which is like a really weird thing that people, when I say it, like it's the least expected place for me to have grown up, I think. It's always really strange. Um, But I lived there for almost my whole life. I was born in Ohio. We moved a lot whenever I was really young. But then when we were two, my parents split up and we happened to be living in Tulsa. And I was there until I was 18. so, but my father's Venezuelan, so when they okay. broke up, um, my dad moved back to Venezuela, so my sister and I would spend a lot of our summers in Venezuela, uh, and our school year in Oklahoma with my mom, which are like the two most random places on earth to really? grow up. It's true. <laughs> right? um, so, yeah, so I think I spent a lot of time going back and forth. Um, Oklahoma's a really interesting place to grow up. It's, you know, um, super friendly, like people are really, really kind and I had you know a big circle of friends and it's was at least at the time really safe and just kind of you know down home in a way yeah um it's also kind of stifling and a bit conservative and I think that that's why I ultimately really wanted to get out of there mm-hmm. um but yeah it was uh totally I, I don't go back very often I don't really <laughs> want to move back in a way but I think I'm really grateful for like some of the the values and especially just sort of Um, the friendliness that I think I came by from growing up there. Definitely. So what were you into as a kid? Like, what kinds of things did you like to play with? Like, were you in any sort of activities? Yeah, I did ballet for most of my life. So I um, started probably when I was, like, eight and and did it all through high school until I was 18 until I moved here. And I was big into art. Um, I think for a while I thought that I was going to be an artist. And also I was always, like, a super environmentalist. Like, my mom tells this really funny story about how when I was maybe six, there was a neighborhood next to mine where they were going to, de- or there was a forest next to mine where they're going to develop it into a neighborhood and they were cutting down all these trees. And I got on our computer and made this little printout sign that said, save the T's, T-E-E-S, because I didn't know how to spell. And then I printed off a bunch of copies and went around and like handed them out to my neighbors. Um, so that was always really important to me <laughs> growing up. Um, and yeah, I think I've just always been like really incessantly curious, like having a lot of travel uh, mm-hmm. early on and not even, I mean, we didn't travel a lot as a family, but going back and forth to South America, yeah. um, I think just kind of gave me a wide-eyed 
view of the world in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was super studious in high school, but I also loved to party and like stuff like that. <laughs> I was a bit of a heathen, um, which I think served me really well in college because I think I got a lot of that out of my system early on too. Mm-hmm. So I feel the same way. Like during high school, I'm like, I smoked enough weed. Like now in my adult life, I'm like, oh, I feel like I kind of... <laughs> I have a handle on that. Yeah, I've like done that already. Yes. So I feel good. But now I'm like super into, you know, like tinctures and yeah, know, different yes. things. It feels a bit more sophisticated. It does. It does. It really like, does. Yeah. No, like pipes made out of Coke cans or right. anything like that. Yeah. Oh God. Probably not good for you. You're gonna give me yeah PTSD. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> so, how did you decide that you were gonna come to Seattle and, and study at UW? Yeah. So my mom and my stepdad were really instrumental in that. In that they uh, said that they would help with college so long as I didn't apply to school in Oklahoma or any state that touched it. Um, in that a lot of people get kind of stuck there and they, um, it's an easy place to just stay, but there's not a lot of opportunity, especially for creatives. Okay. And I think they sort of saw me moving in that direction. So I went to look at schools in New York and Chicago and Denver and here, and Seattle was the only place that wasn't snowing at the time. (laughs) I was like, okay, sounds good. And also I love having the urban campus and I just Mm -hmm. really fell in love with the city whenever I came for the first time. It sort of felt like you know, I'd found a place where I could really kind of make a home. Like, I love New York very much, but it's never felt like somewhere I could be in the long term, and Seattle definitely felt that way. So Mm -hmm. um, I applied to schools in all of those cities and got in, um, and and UW was sort of my first choice, but also the only one I didn't get a scholarship to. What? (laughs) I know. So my parents sort of said, like, okay, like, we can help still, but it would be really beneficial if you would move to Seattle, live for a year, establish residency, yep. and then you can go to school on in-state tuition instead of out-of-state tuition, which is like three times as much. So, Definitely. And I always felt a lot of the other schools I was applying to were private schools where they had, okay. you know, sort of a limited amount of options. And I had, you know, I was 18. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I think very few of us do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to go to a school, a larger school that had everything and did all of it really well and right. I felt like UW was a really good place to be for that so I moved to Seattle I'd only been here the one time before to look at schools and I'd never lived in like you know a big city before like Tulsa is right. not not small but it's not like a city city so I thought you know you just want to live as close to downtown as possible when you move to a new place so right. I lived in Belltown which is like in retrospect a really weird choice <laughs> like yeah Capitol Hill or something might have been more my speed but um yeah so I spent the first year just living there and I had a job at the Cheesecake Factory downtown oh, waiting yes. tables Cheesecake. <laughs> like, this is like my highlight of the story Amazing. <laughs> so weird um so yeah so I just waited tables and and took some community college classes and then ended up transferring over to UW after after a first year okay and so you studied journalism kind of so I actually triple majored oh which is insane. Yeah. Um, but I think having that year off gave me time to really kind of hone in on what I wanted to do as a student. And so my very first quarter, I took a Greek and Roman mythology class and just loved it. And at the end of it, went to my professor and said, like, you know, ancient history is so interesting and whatever, but what is it that I could possibly do with this? Mm-hmm. And she was really great and said to me, you know, the classics are sort of the foundation of of everything in so many ways. And so you, if you want to be a better writer, you should study Latin. If you want to be a more worldly person, you should study the classics. And so I started with that. I declared a major in Latin and classical studies. So two majors, um, 
classical studies or just studying the classes in English. And then I did four years of Latin for my Latin major. Amazing. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And then um, to kind of round out my education, I was also a communications major with a focus in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a little bit of everything, but I had to be really focused in right. the classes that I took. Um, but yeah, and I graduated on time. Um, but again, like having gotten this sort of like wild child situation out of my system Mm -hmm. in high school, I was a super, super focused uh, college student and it was really important to me. So were you working while you were in school? The whole time. Yeah. Um, my senior year, I got a full ride scholarship and was able to work like a lot less, but for the most part I worked in restaurants. I worked at trophy cupcakes. Um, I opened their U village store. Uh, I worked with a Space Needle for two different summers as a waitress. Um, So yeah, I was always trying to kind of balance the two. Uh, But I think I thrive in those situations too, like having a lot on my plate and Mm -hmm. being under massive amounts of stress, I suppose. I mean, (laughs) I suppose. I mean, we'll segue the conversation later into mental health and wellness and balance. But like, where do you, where do you think you get your work ethic? Because I feel like you have to have a crazy work ethic in order to... Maintain that. I, my mom was a single mom for most of my life, and I think that she, you know, worked two and three jobs, and I sort of saw that as being something doable, one, and also just important that, like, you know, having anything, you have, really have to work for it. And so I think that that has always been really important to me. I'm re- just a really driven person in general, so I've, I think I've just always had really good examples around me. Mm-hmm. And what was kind of your off-campus life like? Like, did you have time for socializing? Like, did you go to the games? I, so coming from Oklahoma, where college ball is like a huge deal, <laughs> right? I went to one football game for you, Deb, very early on, and I was like, Ugh. Like, this, it was a bit disappointing. <laughs> so um, after that, not a lot of sports. Um, but I had some really close friends. I had a long-term boyfriend at the time. And so my my out-of-class life was pretty low-key for the most part. Like, yeah. um, nothing crazy. Nothing crazy. And so were you? did you just spend a lot of time at the library doing homework? I mean, I just yeah. the workload just sounds so crazy. I used to sleep at Odegaard Library, like, all the time. <laughs> um, I would pound like enormous Red Bulls and listen to Notorious B.I.G. and just be like on a level all the time, like very high strung (laughs) or just crashed out sleeping. Like it was, it was a lot of work. And I mean, looking back, it's crazy. Like I haven't worked that hard since in some ways, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's really valuable as having a foundation and and being able to do that and pull so many all-nighters, but I'm not capable of doing that again, I think. Okay. So my senior year, um, like I said, I had this scholarship, which freed me up to not have to work, which was great. So I could finally kind of take on some more internships. So my very first internship, which was in the fall quarter of my senior year, uh, was I applied for this job listing that was on the communications board for a travel company in their guidebook department. And I applied and I got it. And I went home to my boyfriend to say like, hey, you know, I got this new internship at this company. I think it's called like Rick Steves. And he was like, what? And I'd never heard of Rick Steves before this point. We don't really like it. Well, you're not from here. Yeah. And it's such a a thing up here. And, um, and it wasn't until I was actually like doing an internship there that I had any idea like what a phenomena it was. So I worked for a quarter in the guidebook department, um, doing some editing, working on their phrase books and things like that. Then my, the following quarter, I started an internship at Seattle Met. And that was um, the w- 
winter quarter of my senior year. And it was sort of my first real like journalism job in that way. And I really loved it. I was also very intimidated. Um, but the very first day where I'm sitting in this room with like four other interns and the managing editor is going down the line to say like, what is it that you're interested in working on while you're here? And I was last in the line and the first person said, oh, you know, like I really think I'd like to write about food. And the next person's like, yeah, like I think I'd, I'd really like to write, you know, like about food. And the third person was like, maybe like arts and culture and like, like food. And I thought <laughs> like, shit, like I can't say food. Like we, we can't all be working on food here. Um, and I've always obviously had an interest in fashion. The style department there is excellent and it especially was at the time. And so I said, you know, I'm really interested in the arts and in fashion, um, but also I'm happy to kind of get put wherever. So at that point I was assigned kind of as a floating intern, but mostly to sort of like the fashion and arts and culture beat. And at the time, Laura Cassidy was the style editor at Seattle Met. She was also editor-in-chief of Bride and Groom. And she's so instrumental in my career um, as a whole, I mean, in Seattle completely. And so one day I remember I was wearing this red lipstick. It's the Sephora collection, always red, like matte, I don't know, lip paint, something or other. And I, Laura walked by my desk and then I shortly afterwards got an email that was like, hey, what's that lipstick you're wearing and do you want to write about it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I totally do. So I started having this sort of monthly series that was like a lip color of the month. I started having nail polish of the month um, and then started getting some bylines in the magazine while I was there as an intern. And it was really cool. Um, Laura was always so encouraging and tried to give me a lot of opportunity to write. And so did just generally the staff of the magazine. Um, and I really had such an excellent internship experience there. Uh, so when I finished, uh, I graduated in September of 2012, or in September, in June mm-hmm. of 2012. And um, at that point, Rick Steves had offered me a job to go to Spain to work with them for five weeks, which was crazy. Amazing. Yeah, so that was my very, I left the day after graduation. It was my very first job out of college. And while I was over there, um, they actually needed some more help. Seattle Met needed some more help in the style department. So they called and asked if I wanted to come on as assistant style editor, which it took me five seconds to say yes. Uh, and I started working under Laura more directly, uh, working on more photo shoots and more stories, bigger packages and things like that. And it was really such an awesome time to be uh, learning in Seattle, to be working on style things. Um, I just felt like I was really a part of something that was really exciting. And it was also great because it was a part-time job. So I had that. I could travel. I was still working in restaurants and stuff like that, but I kind of got to get my foot in the door and meet a lot of people right. in that way uh, and do it directly out of college, which I feel very lucky which to do. Which is incredible. Yeah. What, what, like, how would you describe the style scene in Seattle at that time? I think it was really, you know, it was before Amazon was huge, right? And so mm-hmm. it still felt kind of insular. You know, I hate this notion of that Seattle is not a stylish city. I think right. it's just not known to be one. I think we have, you know, great pockets of stylish people and amazing brands and designers that come out of here. Mm-hmm. But it sort of felt at that time, especially I think because I was so new to just that part of the city, um, right. it felt really special and really like you were a part of like a secret club mm-hmm. of cool people. And, um, you know, it felt like we were able to be innovative and to take risks. And while maybe not everybody was doing that, uh, it did feel like, 
you know, when nobody has expectations of you, which I think is how Seattle's style scene gets <laughs> pigeonholed a lot, totally. then you can kind of like exceed your own expectations right. in that way. Yeah. And do you, I mean, like, was writing for a magazine different than what you had kind of envisioned in your head? You know, I, it's okay. I think yes and no. Um, it's, I think writing for a style section in a Seattle magazine was a bit different in mm-hmm. that, like, unfortunately, like, our stories would be sometimes the first ones to get cut from print and yeah. we'd push it online. Um, and having to advocate for that being important was mm-hmm. always a challenge and trying to say, like, no, you know, putting a budget towards this spring fashion shoot is important and showcasing this designer is important because this is a story that our city is telling and it's, you know, I get that food is the major thing that people are reading about in the magazine or, you know, these sort of deep dive special interest stories. But I think that what we were doing was still something really special and really like needed as a service in our community. I agree hundred percent because as somebody on the other side, that's pitching the fashion stories and being an advocate for my clients, it's so important that somebody on the other end also sees it that way and sees it as valuable and sees, you know, the contribution you know, from an arts perspective, yeah. or just kind of from what's happening in the city. And, and you're right, like we get pigeonholed so often, but there are so many cool people doing amazing things here and to be able to see that in print and... And just, to, you know, support small businesses in general. It's mm-hmm. not just about supporting restaurants. I think, you know, right. um, boutiques and stores and designers are so much a part of like the thread of our community. And Absolutely. I think that it's really important to tell their stories and to give them space like to give them a platform as well yeah so when people were pitching you like how how can somebody get on your radar like when you were trying to select who you were going to cover and what you were going to write about yeah so when I was assistant style editor most of that stuff was just getting assigned to me but after about a year of doing that Laura moved on to go to Nordstrom Mm -hmm. at which point I was promoted to style editor and then also editor-in-chief of bride and groom which was crazy um but so pitches you know I would, you, I would get so much all the time. And right. I think that the more personal and the more direct and the more well-researched things came in, that was what I was more interested in covering. Mm-hmm. You know, things that felt very generalist or like they didn't really know our magazine or even me and sort of the types of things that I was interested in covering or the types of things that we would cover for the magazine when it just felt like this, like throwing something at the wall and hoping it sticks, that was never something that I would, you know, jump on unless it was really special in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would get, you know, these packages of sample stuff and um, it would always be, you know, fine, but it felt like there would be a lot of effort into like, you know, giving me things in the hope that I would cover it. But I would just prefer something that were, even if it's a national brand, somebody that would look to have, a Seattle story attached to it because at the end of the day it was a regional magazine and so right. it had to be kind of have a Seattle uh, undercurrent at the very least mm-hmm. uh, but I was also you know always on the lookout too uh, for new designers especially right. and for just anything that was exciting happening around town I think so much of that job was just networking and being mm-hmm. out and about and making sure that you know, I knew who's who and that they knew me and that we could have a relationship in which they could tell me what they were up to. Right. Yeah. So at that time, especially early in your career, did you have a mentor? I think Laura, I mean, Laura was absolutely my mentor for her, especially when I was working under her as as assistant style editor. She is so, uh, like, I don't even know how to describe her because she's just so enigmatic and so, she's such a personality. Mm -hmm. And 
also just an incredible writer and she would always make my writing better and I think that that's what I aim to be as an editor is not to sort of take away from whatever the voice of the, the writer was originally but to just make tweaks and make suggestions to elevate their writing and mm -hmm. Laura always did that for me she was always super honest um, with feedback she never sort of like held my hand with anything <laughs> which I think whenever you're young in your career is a hard thing sometimes to right. be like oh my god she said this thing and it was negative and does she like me and whatever right. and um, that was tough early on but I think that once we worked together um, we really had a good re a working relationship and she was always mm -hmm. somebody that I could kind of reach out to and talk to about, you know, whatever was going on, um, right. both sort of in my career at the time and also kind of moving forward whenever I was working on more freelance things. So one of the things that's unique about both of those internships is that you later went on to get hired, right, by those companies. So right. how were you able to maintain those relationships so that you did have kind of a segue to come back? Yeah, I think it's rare, right? Like most internships don't end up as anything. Right. And, um, with Rick Steves, after I finished that internship, I sent them an email once a month saying, I'm graduating on this day, I will go anywhere, I'll do anything, you know, I'm into the company, I love travel, et cetera, et cetera, and just sort of kept up with them. And I happened to get very lucky in that I had just sent an email when they responded saying, oh, hey, this woman who normally works on our guidebooks in Spain is pregnant this year and she's not going to be able to do it. Do you want to go to Spain for five weeks? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. That seems okay. So, um, and then after that, I just kind of didn't let them let me go. I've just right. sort of stuck around since then. And then with Seattle Med, it was a similar thing. Um, after I finished my internship, I was still, you know, trying to get bylines and write small stories and things right. like that with them. And I'm still in contact with Laura and it was again, kind of right time, right place that let Laura and I had forged a good relationship and when they needed somebody, it just so happened that I was the right person at the time. Mm -hmm. And so now you've been with Seattle, or not Seattle Met, but with um, Rick Steves for how many years? Like, has it been? Like, it's. So 2012 was my first assignment for them. So I'm going into my. I don't know, what's that math? Seventh year, eighth year? Which this is, will be my eighth year. Which is crazy because that job has really evolved to be yeah, it's a lot so of different much. things. Yeah, for sure. It's. Um, it's the only job. It's the only office job I've ever had. So I worked in the Rick Steves office for six months in 2013, and that was the time where I was like, "Oh, this is not for me." <laughs> um, like these walls. Uh, yes, I me. cannot check in somewhere at nine. I cannot leave at five. Yeah. Um, and it was a really in instrumental in me sort of understanding what type of career I wanted. And so I did that for a short period of time. I have worked on the guidebooks uh, pretty much every year since then. And then I fell into this job as a tour guide, which is so random and a lot of fun, but I started just as an assistant on some tours to help break in new tour guides and then ended up having my own tours in 2013 and have been doing that every year since, which is, it's super fun, but again, it's just the, you know, not something that I ever intended to do in that right. way. And then you supplement your workload with contributing, you know, and kind of doing freelance writing. What, yeah. I mean, so how, how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, so in 2016, I left Seattle Met and Seattle Met Bride and Groom. Um, at that point, I had felt that I really had enough contacts and enough sort of potential clients and potential publications that I could go full-time freelance mm -hmm. and, and not be tied to one magazine. So I left at that point. The first, years were, the first year, at least, was pretty hard because... It is kind of a hustle all the time and making yeah. sure people know you're available and know what you can do and 
that they'll pay your rates and all of this stuff. And so uh, it was a bit frightening in the very beginning. Luckily, I always had Rick Steve's work as a supplement. Right. So it wasn't like that was the, I was completely reliant on freelance. And even to this day, like that's, it's what sustains me in, uh, mm-hmm. for most of the year. But um, I love being a freelancer. I love getting to work with different publications and with different clients and to have all sorts of uh, different stories that I'm telling. Mm-hmm. I work primarily with Gray Magazine. I'm a, a contributing editor there, so I write a lot of design stories and things like that for them mm-hmm. locally. And then uh, just sort of pitching random things to different publications here and there. And then a lot of sort of private copywriting type stuff. Right. But I feel like it's such a great mix and, you know, you get to control your schedule yeah. and still get to travel. How do you, I don't want to say how do you balance it, but how do you, you know, like what's a no, day I look think, like for you? Yeah, it, it's a good, it's an interesting thing because I think there is this sort of idea about freelance and that like I just do what I want all the time and... Right. Um, and it's not that I don't, but there it is like a hustle. Right. I'm always, you know, looking on job boards to see if there's any sort mm-hmm. of random contracts that are posted. Uh, I work yeah. with recruiters, so okay. I hear from them a couple times a week if there's anything that comes up. Um, but I do not have an average day whatsoever. Ever. Uh, not ever. And I think, you know, in the beginning I used to get really kind of concerned about not having a structure like that, mm-hmm. but what I found is I just work best in that sort of environment and, and work on a deadline-based environment instead right. of having to clock in and clock out every day. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are weeks where I work 50, 60 hours because I have a lot of deadlines and a lot of projects that week, and then there are weeks where I have a really light workload, and I just try to kind of balance that all. I think that being a freelancer in the beginning especially, and less so now, uh, is scary because you don't know when work is going to stop coming. Right. And so you have to say yes to absolutely everything. And sometimes that can get really overwhelming because you have too much. Um, right. But it, the fear is that someday there will be nothing. And totally. so um, it's hard. And I think now I've finally gotten to the point where you know I can say no to things or I don't have mm-hmm. to chase down every single lead or more things come to me because people know that I'm available or that I'm a reliable writer or I have, you know, clients that I've worked with that I'm not having to pitch as often. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the day to day it's, you know, I wake up, I do emails and then I just sort of tackle whatever project I have at the moment. Yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, and you're working across so many different time zones in some cases. So it's, you know, like, that show, like, Where in the World is Carmen San Diego? That's how I feel about you. I'm like, where in the world is Amanda Zarita today? Yeah, um, but I think that that is one of my, like, marketable skill sets now is that mm-hmm. I am able to work from anywhere, wherever, right. and be still reliable and ha- and be on time for deadlines. And people know that, you know, just because I'm going to be in Italy for a month doesn't mean that I can't take on an assignment or something right. like that. So, yeah, I get it. It's... It's hard, and I'm always checking my watch just to, you know, make sure I'm not emailing somebody at four o'clock in the morning. They think I'm a psychopath, um, but yeah, it's it's tef- definitely a balance. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about travel because it's such a huge part of your life. Yeah, it is sort of the sort of foundational thing in my life, I yeah. think, and the sort of guiding principle of my life too. Like I. I didn't travel a whole lot as a kid, but besides like back and forth to Venezuela, like we didn't right. have a lot of money growing up. We didn't take any like big international trips. It really isn't until 
college where I studied abroad in Rome and sort of had some more opportunities to travel uh, throughout Europe at that time. But I always knew it was something that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember for a while tossing around the idea of instead of going right to college, being an au pair or something yeah. in, in Europe as like an option for a year just to kind of find a way to do it. And I think that's always been how I look at my life is like, how can I either get paid to travel or mm-hmm. have enough time to travel right. or just, you know, be able to work while I'm traveling, whatever that is. I think it's this sort of underlying current for what guides my decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so great too, because I feel like everybody that's in your circle or that knows you, like you being so curious about the world and being willing to be outside of your comfort zone to travel, like gives other people permission to do the same thing. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I don't want to make it look like it's impossible. That's what's so important to me is Mm -hmm. that like nothing that I do and nowhere that I go is um, too difficult for someone else to do. I think when I look at my social media and stuff like that, I'm really conscious of the fact that like there are a lot of quote unquote influencers that are doing these sort of big glamorous trips. And I think that's amazing, but I, I'm not really doing anything that seems like aspirational in that sense. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just taking, going to places that I'm really excited about or that I'm working in, um, in Europe, for example. But yeah, it's, um, I think it's hard in that sense that I do have, you know, a lot of girlfriends and a lot of people here and I'm gone. I end up being gone for about six months a year total. Mm -hmm. And I really miss my friends and I really miss out on a lot of things here. I miss your birthday. Um, And so these type of things where I, you know, have to weigh that and balance it. But we live in this world that's so easily connected now, like where, you know, maybe they're asleep, but at least everybody that I know is just a text message away like or a FaceTime call or something like that. So that's made it a lot easier. But overall, you know, I think that that's, Sort of a small trade for the life that I get to live. Definitely. Like I feel really lucky. What have been some of your travel highlights so far? Oh, man. Um, I took a solo trip to Bali a few years ago, and that was really phenomenal. I spent 18 days uh, just by myself kind of going around. I went diving and saw some beautiful temples and went to this sort of fortune teller guy oh. that was really cool. It felt very eat, pray, love or whatever. <laughs> Um, but I loved that. And then most recently for my birthday this year, I turned 30 and I decided to do 30 days of travel for my 30th. And I started that off by going to Salulita in Mexico for a week with some girlfriends. Then, uh, me and one of my closest friends, Jenny, uh, she and I went on to go to Mexico city for a few days. And then we spent a week in Cuba and Cuba blew my mind. Like I, I, always I keep struggling to describe it to people because it was so beautiful but also so eye-opening and trying to understand a different culture yeah for me like I speak Spanish I grew up speaking Spanish and so I go to a lot of Spanish-speaking countries and I feel very in my element Mm -hmm. um but despite that like Cuba felt very foreign to me in so many ways and it's totally because it's a communist country and so the differences between like what I have access to versus what a Cuban local has access to, like, you know, I can't take the local bus because I don't have access to the local Cuban currency. There are two currencies, like one for tourists and one for locals. And so that was something that blew my mind. Also just getting my head around traveling there, you have to bring all the cash that you need because your credit cards and debit cards don't work whenever you're there. What if you get Um, robbed? You can get like, there's like a Western Union or something. But But the other thing is, it's like, 
an incredibly safe country. So like mm-hmm. this idea of getting robbed is while I'm so nervous about it everywhere. And while you would think like everyone knows that every tourist coming in has a ton of cash on them. Right. Like it turns out I, I never felt unsafe there, not even for a minute. Um, and we would be out, you know, really late. And mm-hmm. um, so there's that. And, you know, Wi-Fi doesn't work. There are Wi-Fi parks there where you have to buy a by the hour card and hope that you can log in on your phone, but you don't have it in your home. You don't have it like at your Airbnb, except for that our second Airbnb, there was this very entrepreneurial local woman um, that lived on the bottom floor and she had somehow like rigged her router to connect to the state router and then she would charge us five dollars for 24 hours to connect in our airbnb and it was like really slow but it's also like illegal and um but um there that was so much of what i learned about the cuban people is that they are very they have this incredible entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. and i think we tried to do a lot of like airbnb experiences which is the first time i'd ever done anything like that but i think that's very valuable especially down there and one of them that we did Um, was a walking tour with an economist and we basically went all around town he answered all sorts of our questions about what it's like to live in Cuba what life is like Uh, and at the end we went to his friend's grandma's house and we got to sit there and ask her questions and she had lived um, before the revolution and so before communism was uh, put into place and so it was really fascinating. You know, the average Cuban person that works for the government, which is 80, 88% of the, the people that live there work for the government, mm-hmm. they make 30 to 50 US dollars a month. And that's like, I mean, it's nothing. Right. And so she showed us her ration book, which was crazy. Like um, this sort of allotment of what you can buy, not even what's given to you. Um, every month it's sort of like a subsidized rate from the government. But it's like two pounds of coffee or something like that. And the coffee is only half coffee, half like chicory. And um, for a country that like produces coffee, like this is a very strange thing. And, um, you know, it's what they're given on their ration books is just enough to get by, but nothing more. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the sense that I got in general of what comes from the government is that you get just enough. And um, it was fascinating. I mean, I've been to a lot of countries where there's poverty, right? But um, it always feels like, you know, even in poverty, you you could potentially have access to things. Like you could, if you had money, go to the store and buy X, Y, and Z things. But in Mm -hmm. Cuba, it's not like that. Like you can't just go to the store and pick up whatever because of trade embargoes and things like that. They just don't have these things. Um, So that was really fascinating. But I didn't find anybody to be like depressed and obviously there is no poverty because everybody is somehow taken care of Mm -hmm. um but it felt like everyone there is really like interested in finding ways that they can have a side hustle or something which I obviously identify with in a lot of ways (laughs) totally um so yeah it was just it was a really beautiful trip I'm so excited to go back and to keep going back and to keep Mm -hmm. learning I've been trying to read more and more and to understand but I think that the more I travel to anywhere, the the like better citizen of the world I become. Definitely, um, it's so eye opening, and it's it's one of the reasons why I travel so frequently with my kids. Yeah, is that I want them to know the world is huge, and there are so many people, and it's not just you. And I think totally. that just having that awareness and just being able to respect the way that other people live and operate, and I think to understand that like just because you were born somewhere, it doesn't really like 
mean anything or I mean it means everything in some ways but it it wasn't something that any of us got to choose you know and so I think that being aware of our privilege and our place in the world and, and what that means has been really important and something that I like think about all the time like no matter where I'm traveling well and think about you know for us to have grown up in a communist country where you almost you just really wouldn't know the difference unless you're hearing from outside people like how different the world could right be. yeah and nowadays like in Cuba um one of the most interesting things to me is that they only have four tv stations and they're all run by the state mm-hmm. and then they the internet is like severely restricted so they don't get like youtube or netflix or anything like that but some like really entrepreneurial guy every Monday will come around with a hard drive and if you pay him three dollars on Monday he will download all of the content from all over the place onto like your home computer or whatever you have so I was talking to them and I was like you know what what's on that and they were like you know like Game of Thrones (laughs) and like the news and stuff like that so the way that they're they're getting their information it is coming in and they're getting more and more access to it but it's um kind of this underground type world in that sense which was really cool and really um you know both sad and fascinating I think at the same time Mm -hmm. so do you have trips coming up this year that you're excited about yeah I have quite a few um on Tuesday actually I'm leaving for Scandinavia amazing yeah so I'm gonna do a 10-day trip there I just got an insane deal on a plane ticket and kind of like couldn't turn it down so I'm gonna do the fjords in Norway and then Mm -hmm. go to Stockholm and Helsinki I've been to Helsinki before, but nowhere else. So that should be super fun. It's still a bit cold there, so I'm trying to figure out how to pack. Um, I'm headed back to Italy and Spain in the spring. Um, I am also assisting on a tour in Ireland, which I think is should be really oh my fun. Gosh, that'll be really cool. Yeah, I've only been to Dublin really briefly, um, and then I'm going to Iceland over the summer. So quite a few good trips. Yeah. Um, I've never been to a lot of these places, which should be. Super fun, and then um, I'm just kind of always on the lookout for something else to do and somewhere new, yeah. new to go as often as possible, yeah. So when you went on your solo trip, were you nervous to travel alone? You know, um, I was just talking about this to someone recently. The very first trip I took alone was to Peru mm-hmm. to do the hike to Machu Picchu. Oh, that's right. Uh, and I must have been 19 or 20, and I was so nervous at the time, and I had to, you have to, to do the hike, you have to go with a group, and so I... I remember calling my mom and saying, like, you know, I just don't know. I think it should be fine. And ultimately, like, really valued that experience. I am not the type of person that gets lonely very often. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not, like, I really like solo travel for that reason. I get to spend a lot of time with myself. I also think sometimes there's this travel guilt when you're with somebody else or even on your own where, you know, you have you are somewhere else that maybe you won't be ever again. And so you feel like obligated to do everything and see everything and I think when I'm traveling alone I think like god I'm so tired I just want to like stay inside and watch a movie and to be able to give myself that permission and not have to feel guilty is always really really nice um so yeah I make a pretty good travel partner for myself um Mm -hmm. I go on quite a few solo trips to Scandinavia trip I'll be by myself as well um and I really encourage people to do it it is scary like it Mm -hmm. is overwhelming um but I think that you know no matter what type of person you are I think you can get a lot out of it like I'm pretty introverted actually whenever I travel I don't like you know make a lot of friends or anything like that like I have um one of my closest friends she does these like you know several week or month long trips and she'll come back and have you know all these like 
new best friends in Barcelona and whatever because she's really good about like going out and talking to people mm-hmm. um, and that's great if you're that type of person I'm not and I still get a lot out of traveling on my own too so I think that like it's if you're ever thinking of it and you don't have somebody to go with you like you should just go especially because like I was saying technology is so great and so it, like I never feel super lonely because I can always just reach out to somebody back home or whatever So mental health is something you've spoken openly about in the past. What has your experience been dealing with it? Yeah, I think, um, one, I like to talk about it all the time just because I think it makes it easier for other people to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And that's super important to me. But I've been, I've had depression off and on, you know, probably since high school. And I think that it wasn't until like three years ago where I really identified it as depression instead of just sort of like, being sad sometimes, which I think there is a difference, um, of, you know, sort of just working through things situationally, but, or having this sort of long-term, like underlying, like current of depression. And, um, yeah, so about three years ago, I started talking, I've always been in and out of therapy and that's always been something that I'm a huge advocate for. Like if you can find somebody, I know that we live in a world where it's not like covered by insurance most of the time and it's really hard, but I think that I've always found it so valuable, even whenever I'm not, like, in crisis mode or whatever. But just having somebody that's, like, a neutral um, party that you can dump all of your stuff onto. Because I think I'm the type of person that, like, I am more than happy to, like, hear about my friends' issues and to be sort of somebody that they can talk to. But I've always found it, like, I never want to impose on my friends or something like that. And also, like, your friends or your family or whoever, like, they always have kind of stake in the game, right? Definitely. But if you can find like a therapist or somebody that that isn't, you know, immediately involved in your life. So, I've been in therapy, you know, off and on for for definitely the past like 5 or 6 years. Mm-hmm. Um I had a lot of anxiety in college and I think like probably the Red Bull did not help in right. a lot of ways, but um you know, so I would see doctors and try to talk about that as much as possible but like I said like three years ago I really sort of thought like okay I think this has gotten a little bit out of hand and Mm -hmm. was just very open and honest with my general practitioner and I think that's another thing I always tell people to like find a doctor that you feel like you can totally trust and that you can talk to um and I think especially you know working in the creative world like we as as a freelancer too like I'm alone a lot like there are all sorts of kind of issues that come up for creatives which we can talk about but um so I spent a couple years like trying different antidepressants about a year ago I landed on one that I really like and Mm -hmm. one day it was like oh like this is what it's like to feel normal like this is how I used to feel and how nice and um I think I love my doctor especially because her view is that like it's not something that you have to be on forever right um but it's just a tool and it's like you know mental health is just health in general like you wouldn't ignore your stomach ache or something if you were feeling that way for years and so I think that any sort of solutions I could find I was really open to and I feel lucky in that like I've never felt the stigma of like medication or something like that, but I know that it's a very real thing for people. Right. But so it, for that reason, I talk about it a lot to try to help alleviate that stigma. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, now I have up and down days, of course, but I think they're a lot more like ups. I love that the sun is coming out because Definitely. like se- seasonal affective disorder is a real thing Especially too. Especially here in the Pacific Northwest. Totally. And yeah. I've been also, you know, just trying to be active in 
like physically active and knowing that that's something that helps me a lot too in the winters you know I've taken up skiing more and more often and just Mm -hmm. like finding things that you know whenever you're in these sort of moods or in these sort of winter doldrums they're easy to kind of find ways to get out and do something that makes you feel really good right um especially fresh air um yeah so again like it's something I try to talk to my friends about to try to be really open about like I am always like talk happy to talk about like my journey and things like that because I think it just makes it easier for other people definitely but yeah like I was saying for creatives like it's hard one creatives just tend to be more like emotionally uh up and down people right like we feel a lot we take in a lot um but also kind of work in these isolated environments a lot of the time and that's Mm -hmm. you know designers and uh writers and um you know, even PR, like you work pretty solo for the most part. And so, you know, not having kind of a sounding board or even a point of comparison to kind of know what the person next to you is feeling in a way. Um, So I think that, you know, one, being able to talk openly about it and ask for advice. um, And two, finding these resources, finding therapy or finding, you know, medication if you think that's right for you. But being able to, you know, just have people you can talk to has always been really, really important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that so much of what we're experiencing now just with regard to mental health too is also in some ways driven by all of the time that we spend on social media. Do you right. want to kind of speak to that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of burnout where everybody looks like they're leading their perfect life mm-hmm. um, is really tough right yeah. and I think now at least in the past year I think there it has been a movement for people being more honest mm-hmm. and being more real about their life and because I'm I think we all got sick of seeing everybody doing like everything perfectly and right. having everything perfect and it doesn't yep. feel real to any of us right um I've always tried to be really honest on my social media especially you know with travel like my life looks it, pretty great like on paper in that way right but I also want to say like some days I have like really down days and some right. days like it's tough to get out of bed and all of these things and I think mm-hmm. it's important that we all continue to you know show the best parts and the most exciting parts of ourselves right um but to also you know make sure that we look like real people and mm-hmm. I think if you're if you're on your social media for me too and you're feeling like you're only being exposed to like you know, everybody's best life, then maybe, you know, getting rid of some of those accounts or not following some of those accounts that make you feel down in any way or inadequate in any way, like, Mm -hmm. um, is really important because like it shouldn't be that way. It's such a weird thing. Social media too. Like it's it's like such a bizarre thing that we do. Um, so it shouldn't be there to bum us out, I think. And so just to find, you know, accounts that feel real to you or, Mm -hmm you know, take breaks whenever you feel like you need it um, is all, I think, really, really important. Definitely. And so through therapy, you've been able to find some perspective, right, to kind of pull you out. Um, Has it also helped you, like, set boundaries in your life? Totally. Yeah, I think boundary setting has been, like, a definitive part of the last few few years of my life. And to know, you know, how boundaries work and not that it's, like, a bad thing. I think we think of boundaries as like you're putting up a wall between you and somebody else or you and some experience or whatever it is. Yeah. But I really think of it differently in that like me setting a boundary with a person or with something within myself is really just helping me to have a better relationship with that person or to, you know, have a better experience myself or to protect myself in ways that kind of make you a healthier human being in general. Mm -hmm. And so, 
Yeah, it's been, I think, super tough for me because I'm a people pleaser for the most part. <laughs> and um, I want everyone to like me and whatever. But I think I've had to say, like, you know, this is what I can and cannot talk about with you with certain people. Or right. this is what I am and am not capable of whenever it comes to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, knowing my limits for work or for... Um, for friendship or whatever right. it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's so huge. In fact, that being more honest is, was one of my new year's resolutions. And for people that know me that are kind of in the inner circle, they're like, Oh shit. Like you're already super honest and direct. <laughs> like, why is that on? But you know, I'm also a people pleaser and I definitely, there are certain situations where I walk away from feeling like, Oh, like that there's something about this that doesn't feel sure. good. And it's usually that I'm not creating healthy boundaries for yeah. myself and for the way that other people treat me. And so it, it is huge. And, and ultimately it's it's made such a big difference in a positive way yeah and I think not only like for you too especially being putting boundaries around your time I think has been a big thing for me too is mm -hmm. you know not over committing and and knowing right. like that self-care and knowing that yeah. taking an hour in the bathtub or whatever is just as valuable as you know that event that you maybe needed sort of to go to or right. whatever and um I think the like you said, the more honest you can be, and the, and I've had a lot of issues with this too, like the more real you can be with the people around you, like the more they'll respect and understand it. And if they don't, they're kind of like not the people for you right. too, then right? Right, like, then it's a great filter. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> like, it's been good for that. So um, what... I know that you're working, I don't know if you're allowed to say, but I know that you're working on a, a second company yeah. in terms of travel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, I'm totally allowed to say. It's oh, still okay. kind of in its early stages, but um, I'm working with a friend of mine. Uh, I'm a co-founder of a travel business. So it's going to be, um, it's going to start with travel consulting. We'll move mm -hmm. into being a travel agency and have tours in the future. Uh, I think both of us have been the sort of go-to person whenever anybody has a trip that they're going on and right. while I love being able to offer advice to my friends I think the two of us realized like the number of like dms and whatever that we get from random people asking our advice was getting a little out of control <laughs> and I think more than anything whoever you are if this type of thing is happening to you where like you're the resource for somebody you need to start charging for it mm -hmm. and like that needs to be like your skill set is marketable and yeah. is something that you should make money doing and especially if it's something you love like for me like travel absolutely so yeah that's kind of in the works um we're so very early in the process but we're really really excited about it for sure oh my gosh I cannot wait so um what are your favorite words of wisdom I've been thinking about this a lot I think um maybe less words of wisdom but sort of like a a theory to live by is mm -hmm. this theory called shine theory have you heard of it no God, I, I'm going to be terrible because I don't remember where it comes from, but I've known about it for a few years. And the idea is that like someone else's shine doesn't take away from yours mm -hmm. and in actual like, <coughs> sorry, in reality, it makes yours brighter. And so I think, <coughs> do you want me to start that again? I feel like I have heard this before and it's kind of this theory that like the rising tide like lifts all yeah boats. and I think it's especially good for women in that like we it's changing so much too but like we were raised to be kind of competitive against other women mm -hmm. and so it's hard to see someone else doing really well especially like a friend or even not a friend just somebody that you know right. and to not feel envious or jealous or competitive yeah. but instead to kind of look at that and feel excited for that person or like mm -hmm. to respect them and 
that's been a big deal in the past few years of my life. It's just yeah. especially like I have such cool, cool women around me. You and do. to yeah, like I've got the best friend group and you included, like being Aww. able to have these type of people in my life, like it feels so good and so inspiring. And I think when you can get over this notion that like you're in a race with somebody, even right. if they're in your field or whatever totally. it is, and still celebrate them and learn from them and ask questions, like mm-hmm. I think all of that has really sort of changed the way that I operate um, and sort of hang out with people. And it takes so much pressure off of you too (laughs) to like not feel like everybody's your competition all the time. So yeah, shine theory is something that, you know, I really try to implement and try to remember um, and try to kind of lift the people around me up as much as possible. I love that. And it's something that we talk about a lot in the blogging community. So, you know, this whole idea of like community over competition, Totally. you know, which sounds great as a slogan, but it's like, you know, when you dive deeper, it's like, what does that mean? And, and really at the end of the day, it means that you're both, you know, coming out of a partnership or a collaboration, like really feeling good about it and really kind of having this balance in terms of what you get out of it and, and how you approach it. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, there's enough to go around for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think as long as you're uh, you're hustling and you're creative and you're doing whatever, that you really can learn from the person next to you and Definitely. still support them and yep. be, you know, their cheerleader as well as your own advocate. Absolutely. So where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at a Carolina, C-A-R-O-L-E-N-A. My website's amandazarita.com, but it's always in need of an update. <laughs> um, but those are sort of my two major okay. places for sure. Okay, and is that where you'll be announcing your new company? Um, probably, yeah. So look for that in the next few months. Um, we are in design stage and things like that right now. But yeah, just you know, stay stay up on that. But for sure, I'm I'm sure we'll not stop talking about it um, as soon as we're kind of ready. Good, and I want to go on one of the tours. Yeah, for sure. I'm really really stoked. So Hopefully, amazing. we'll put Cuba on the list. Yes, there. please. I would yeah. love to. Yeah. Thanks so much for being Thank here. Thank you. I loved it. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Sydney Mintel, and you've been listening to the Gossip and Glamour podcast. See you next time.